All right, good evening, Summit Church. I'm uh, really glad that you're here today. Glad to see you. Um, thanks for coming tonight. Um, I usually don't show up in the evening, so it's kind of cool for me to be here. This is like a totally different crowd, totally different feel, but it's actually really cool. I really like it. Um, as Brian said, I grew up in Denver, so I'm one of the few natives. Um, and you know, if you moved here from someplace else, I'm really not bitter at you. I'm not angry at all. Like, I'm glad that you're here. I love living here. I've loved living here for pretty much my entire life. So I'm glad you can enjoy uh, this place um, as well. And I'm really humbled and honored just to share with you tonight. Um, I don't take it lightly. It's really a pleasure to be in front up here uh, speaking to you. And uh, it's just really cool to be able to talk a little bit about uh, Luke chapter 2 tonight. So, um, you know, as Brian said, this is the last sermon in our Advent series. And it might seem kind of strange because we're already like one week into 2017. And uh, maybe you've made some New Year's resolutions, I don't know. Maybe you've done it for a week and you're just done with it. Um, And so I thought it'd be cool if you haven't made any resolutions, let's look at the top five from Google to give you some inspiration. So here's the top five New Year's resolutions from Google. Number one is getting fit. Uh, Number two is losing weight. Number three is enjoying life to the fullest. Uh, Number four is saving more money. And uh, number five is spending more time with family and friends. And I wanted to include number seven because I thought that was the best one. And it said, uh, I'll never make any more resolutions ever again. <laughs> um, so no matter where you're at, like where, whatever you're doing today, if you've made some resolutions, if you haven't, I'm really glad that you're here. And uh, we're going to dive into this story from Luke, which is a really cool story, actually. Um, and like I said, it's a little strange. After going through the entire Christmas story, you know, we've gone through all the angels and shepherds and Jesus' birth. And last week with the prophets um, in the temple. Um, And then we get this story of like distressed parents, maybe a puzzling statement from Jesus, kind of an argument that's about to happen. Um, But I want to make the case tonight that it's actually really intentional what Luke is doing here. We have one story in the Bible from Jesus' childhood, from his youth. That's all we get, one story. Um, And that's very significant And I think it kind of makes sense. I mean, kind of think about it. We all have a fascination with the childhood of famous people, right? Whether they're musicians or actors or athletes, we kind of want to know, like, what point in their childhood or what helps them get to where they are at today? Like, what formed them? What impacted them? Um, And I read this biography by Andre Agassi a couple years ago. And if you don't know who Andre Agassi was, he was the number one tennis champion in the world in the early, like, 1990s, early 2000s. Um, He won eight Grand Slam championships, and he had kind of this signature look. If you hadn't seen him, he was kind of a crazy-looking guy. He had this huge hair, huge mullet. He'd wear this bandana. He'd wear cut-off jeans to play tennis in. And um, what was really crazy was that about halfway through his career, he starts losing his hair. He's going bald. And he can't lose his hair, right? So he decides to wear this mitt, this wig, And that's kind of this big, like, lion mane-looking thing. And he pulled it off for, like, nobody knew that he was doing this. Um, But then he starts to lose it in, like, the 1990 French Open. And he blames his loss of that tournament on on that event. Um, And he really was an amazing athlete with accomplishments and all of these things. But he really struggled internally. He struggled with a meth addiction. He struggled with alcohol. His marriage fell apart. And he reveals a lot in his biography. The first line of his biography is, I hate tennis. And that's really unexpected, right? You wouldn't, you wouldn't expect that from this kind of a guy. But his childhood really shaped him. He had some really significant events. His father pressured him immensely. His father wanted a star athlete so bad that he built a tennis court in the back of Andre's house. He had Andre hitting 1,000 balls a day. And he never escaped that pressure. Even though he went on to accomplish great things, 
He never, ever escaped it. It forever shaped him and marked him. And today we're going to get a window into the childhood of Jesus. And it's a little bit different because it's not so much the events that shaped Jesus, but these events actually communicate who Jesus is, who he will be, how he will shape and impact the world, shape you, shape me. We learn that Jesus grew up in the first century as a boy in the Middle East, in a family, but in also some incredible way was also the son of God. And this story is never included in any Christmas story, Advent movies, books, songs, poems, whatever. You never hear about it. It's kind of always kind of left out. But it's kind of a shame because it sets the stage for who Jesus will be, who he will go on to be, and what he's doing here in the first place. So here's what we'll talk about today. We'll talk about three things. First, we'll look at the humanity of Jesus, the fact that he's human. Second, we'll look at the deity of Jesus, the fact that he's God. And then the third thing we'll do is just ask, what does that mean for us? Like, what's our response in that? So the humanity of Jesus, the deity of Jesus, and then what do we do with that? So let's look at the first five verses here quickly. It says in uh, verse 41 of Luke chapter 2, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, they were returning. The boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. So what do we learn here? The first thing that we see is that Jesus is 12 years old. His family is very committed to the Jewish faith. You know, many of the Jewish people during this time period really spread out. They had been uh, spread out as a result of being occupied by empires and different nations. And so it was really challenging for people to get back to Jerusalem. Also, by Jewish law, it was a requirement that every male would return to Jerusalem during certain festivals and ceremonies. And this is actually a really big year for Jesus. It looks like, according to what the text implies, that it could be the first time that Jesus goes with the family. We also know that at 12 years old, a boy would begin the transition from childhood to manhood. He would regularly participate in like, the religious ceremonies and practices, kind of like a bar mitzvah would be um, in current day. And this reminded me of what it was like to get my driver's license. I don't know if this was like it for you at all, but I was 16 years old, right? There's a lot of anticipation leading up to this point. I mean, I was counting down the days. I was checking my parents' calendar, checking the DMV schedule, make sure everything would align. My parents had this old 1985 Honda Civic station wagon, and it was like your basic family vehicle. It had no power, no power windows, no power doors, no power locks, you know, hardly any power in the engine. Everything's manual. Um, my dad thought a manual transmission was like the only real car. So I was like really nervous about this. Not only did I have to go take the test, but I also had to like drive this manual car. And um, I did a ton of laps in the front of our house. We had this circular driveway and I would just do laps around it, practicing the clutch and the gas, making sure I wasn't making the car die. Um, And when it came time to get my driver's license, it was a huge day for me. I mean, it was more than getting that piece of paper or that, you know, card with your picture on it. It meant that I was becoming like an adult. It meant that I was transitioning from being a child to a man. I was gaining independence. I was getting responsibility. I could go wherever I wanted, when I wanted. And similar to that, we see that Jesus is going through this time of transition. What's also really significant here is that this is Passover, and that was a huge deal for a Jewish family. Passover was a celebration, if you don't know, of the nation of Israel to celebrate their liberation from slavery in Egypt. Kind of like Fourth of July would be for us as Americans, but instead of having like one day with fireworks and barbecues and all that, it would last seven or eight days. 
We read this story in the book of Exodus, in the Old Testament section of the Bible. The Israelites are held captive and are slaves in Egypt. But then, at one point, God decides to liberate them. And the Egyptians are stubborn, right? They don't want to let their slaves go. They've been building all these things for them. But God decides to use ten horrible plagues to get the Egyptians to release the Israelites. And they're crazy. There's water being turned into blood. There's frogs sent across the entire land. Millions of grasshoppers. Hailstones falling from uh, the heavens. Darkness covering the entire land. But the tenth and worst plague of all is that God would cause the death of every firstborn in every household in Egypt. But he decides to spare the Israelites from this. He provides a way out, and he has them kind of do a crazy thing. He has them mark the doorpost of their home with the blood of a slain lamb, and in which case God would pass over each of the households, and that's where we get the name from, Passover. And that's kind of crazy. There's a lot of backstory there. But Passover would also look forward to the Messiah, to Jesus who would come in the future to save each person from their sin. So at the end of the celebration, we see that the family returns. It's kind of a large group of people, it looks like. I mean, it probably was their community. It would have been made up of maybe coworkers and friends, extended family, all of those people. And it's a really long journey, actually. So the journey from Jerusalem back to Nazareth was about 65 miles, and they did it on foot. So imagine walking from here to Fort Collins. It's a really big journey. And it looks like from the text, they go a day's journey, they stop for the night, and then all of a sudden, you know, Mary's looking at Joseph, Joseph's looking at Mary, and they're like, where's Jesus? They can't find him. So they do an intense search, right? They're asking each person, like, where did you see him last? Where was he? What happened? He's been missing an entire day at this point. I think we have to ask, like, how could this happen? Like, this is a big journey. It's an important um, ceremony. It's all of these things, but he gets lost. And I think I understand this in a very small way. Um, We celebrated Christmas with my wife's family this year, and there's a ton of kids when our two families get together. Um, When it's all said and done, we have six kids all under the age of seven, and so it's just crazy. But when you're, like, with family, you just kind of let them run around. Like, you don't really watch them. You're just kind of assuming that, like grandparents and, you know, are there and like brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles, they're all there kind of watching them. And so we're having a great time. And uh, all of a sudden we're looking around and we can't find my son Cedar. And he's three years old, so he can hardly feed himself, right? And at that point, when you realize that you don't know where your child's at, it's immediate panic. And the thing about Cedar is that he, he hates clothes. So he usually shows up at places and just takes all his clothes off. And it's like 10 degrees outside. And I'm thinking like maybe he's wandering the streets of Centennial with like no clothes on. And all of these things are just running through your head. So we start looking for him. And then finally, we hear this little tiny voice like way down in the basement. And it's saying, Mommy. And uh, we rush down there. And Cedar's behind this locked door. He can't get out. Um, and I can't even imagine what it would be like to lose my child for more time than that, to lose him for three days. I mean, imagine the feeling of dread and extreme anxiety that Mary and Joseph would have in their hearts for their firstborn child. So they search among the group. They determine he's probably back in Jerusalem. So they decide to return. It's a day's walk back. And I'm sure, you know, the worst possibilities are swirling around in their head. And I want to take a moment here just to point out that this is a very human story. It's very tragic. It's very traumatic but it's very typical of something that could happen to any family. You know, I've, I talked with a couple of families after the second service, 
and they told me stories of losing their kids. And I think that's significant. Also remember that Jesus grows up in a small town, in the town of Nazareth, which was a nothing place. Like, think like armpit of America. It was horrible. And, um, you know, actually, it, it was pretty significant because his followers, his disciples later on in life, would, like, they were, couldn't understand, like, how could something good come out of Nazareth? But Jesus lived a human life with all the ups and downs and joys and struggles of that life. What's also really interesting is that Joseph is not mentioned after this story. We don't really hear from him. We don't hear about him. Most people think that uh, Jesus probably lost his dad. Maybe perhaps you've lost a parent, a loved one, maybe someone close to you. That's tragic. Jesus went through tragedy as well. He went through difficulty and suffering. And you know, we're really missing a lot of information on Jesus' childhood. Like I said, this is it. This is the only story that we have. But I think that absence or silence regarding Jesus' childhood really speaks louder than words because it tells us that he lived very much the same life that any boy, any Jewish boy would have lived during that time, the same human life that you and I lead. And there's a perfect statement in the book of Hebrews. It's in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 15. I think it should be on the slides. It says this, Since then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And this is really the mystery and the hope of Advent that we've been talking about. I mean, you may be in the most difficult place in your life starting 2017. Maybe 2016 was the worst year that you've had. I don't know. Maybe perhaps you're waiting for something. It seems that nothing good can come out of where you're at. Maybe you feel completely lost. But there's really good news here. This is what this story is telling us. Jesus' humanity means that he knows you, but like really knows you, not just kind of knows you. I love languages, and if you took a language like in high school or in college or anything, I took Spanish, um, you know that in a lot of other languages, they have multiple words for like one word that we have in English. So in Spanish, there's two words for the word no. You have the word saber, which is kind of a head knowledge. It means like I would use that word if I know how to ride a bike or I know how to drive a car. They also have a word, conocer, it's used for an intimate knowledge of something. It's used for when you meet somebody. And that's exactly what this story is showing us, that Jesus just not knows your name or your address or what you did last week or whether you're naughty or nice. He understands you. He knows your joy, your pain, your uncertainty, and he promises to be there with you in that. So remember that Luke is telling this story with great intentionality. Also remember that it's this Passover celebration. Also, I want to make a quick mention, and we'll talk about this in just a minute, but there's a great foreshadowing going on here. The journey to Jerusalem, Jesus will make this same journey back to Jerusalem at the end of his life, but at that point, to die. So we just saw his humanity. Let's shift to seeing how the deity of Jesus is communicated. So we'll read uh, verses 46 through 51 here. So it says in verse 46, After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And I'll, I'll stop right there in the middle of uh, 51. 
But um, so imagine this. They've lost him for three days. They're frantic. They can't find him. They finally determine that he's in the temple. They show up there, and then they come upon this scene, and he's, like, teaching a bunch of old men. Like, he's not even worried, apparently. Um, and what are the reactions that we see here? I mean, the, the teachers, the, the experts of the time in religious studies were astonished. Actually, the Greek words being used here in the original language communicate that they are astonished to the point of mental imbalance. So basically, they're blown away. They cannot believe the words that are coming out of this 12-year-old's mouth. And the style was very question-and-answer format. That, that would have been the way they would have taught. So he's asking these questions, and by the very questions, they can't believe what he's saying. What about the reaction of Mary and Joseph here? I mean, they're astonished. They're blown away. They can't believe he's doing this. But then that quickly turns to frustration and confusion and maybe anger. Let's also remember that it's been 12 years since the events of the Christmas story as we know it. You know, for us, we read this section in Luke, like right after, you know, all of the amazing things that happen. But it's been 12 years for them. Like, how do they feel? Um, scared, confused? Maybe there's some regret there at the fact that they have this responsibility of taking care of the Son of God and then just kind of lose him. And then Jesus speaks. These are the very first words that we have from Jesus as a human recorded in the Bible. The very first Jesus says, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? It's kind of a puzzling statement. I mean, his parents are obviously misunderstand. Maybe there's going to be an argument that's going to happen really here, quick here. I mean, what do you do with this? When I read this, this reminded me of Neo in the movie The Matrix. I don't know if you've seen The Matrix. It's a little bit of an older movie. It's still pretty cool. I like it. There's three different movies. You know, it's a part one, part two, part three. Um, but there's a scene in the first movie that's really climactic. At least it's kind of set up to be that way. It's where Neo goes to see um, this character they call the Oracle. So this Oracle apparently knows the future, if you haven't seen the movie. And um, the Oracle will tell us if Neo is the hero of this story, like the one they call him in the movie, or if he's just kind of a nobody. And uh, there's a huge buildup to this part of the movie. So he, he walks this old apartment, abandoned apartment building, he goes in, he goes up this old elevator, he goes down this long hallway after getting off, he comes to like the last door, he opens the door, and then there's this kind of this strange scene in this apartment room. There's all of these kids, and they're doing all these kind of crazy things, like one is bending a spoon with his mind, they're like juggling bean bags in the air, like they're levitating them with their minds, and um, apparently they're all candidates to be the one, they're the candidates to be the hero of this story. So Neo waits his turn, and then after a few minutes, he gets called up, and he walks into the other room, and the oracle turns out to be this old grandmother, and she's baking chocolate chip cookies. And they have a conversation. She looks at him kind of intently. She looks like his hands. She apparently knows what she's doing. And she steps back and says, nope, you're not the one. Gives him a chocolate chip cookie, and then out he walks. And I think in a similar way, this is how, maybe how Mary and Joseph felt. I mean, Mary wants an explanation, right? She asks, why have you treated us this way? Don't we ask the same questions in our lives when terrible things are going on, when we're frustrated, when we don't understand what's happening? The first question is always, why me? Like, why is this happening? In the movie, Neo expects to find his purpose and identity, why all of this is happening to him, but he walks away without any of that. I think Mary and Joseph feel the same way, but I mean, think about it. Out of all the people in history, don't you think that Mary and Joseph would have known their purpose for being on this earth. 
I mean, they've encountered angels and miracles and prophets. God in the flesh is now among them. But they still struggle. It's still hard. It just doesn't make sense. I thought Drew did a really great job last week. He talked about Mary and Joseph and their expectations of being parents. They met Simeon and Anna. If you remember, they were prophets in the temple who told uh, Mary and Joseph that the life of Jesus would not be what they expected. It would be suffering. Jesus would be divisive to the point that people either love him or hate him, and most people would probably hate him. And we have many expectations in our lives, but I think it's more than that. I think it's more of a question of identity. And we can find our identity in so many things. You know, maybe you moved to Denver for a job, and then you lost the job. Or the company downsized, the startup failed. Maybe you put everything into a relationship, and then that fell apart. Maybe all you wanted to have was a child, but you couldn't. Maybe you had children and you thought your life would be complete, but it's like so difficult. Maybe nothing is happening in your life right now. You're just stuck. You can't get out. You feel like you do the same thing every day. Or maybe fill in the blank of whatever you staked your hope in, staked your life on, staked your identity in, and it just didn't deliver. This story has a lot to say about that. One of my favorite verses, going back in the Old Testament, is Psalm 119. It's verse 159. It says, give me life according to your steadfast love. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. And I think Christmas is fantastic, right? The story of his conception, his birth, it's all amazing. And everybody loves Christmas, but if we stake our life and our meaning and our purpose and our identity, or maybe just like hoping that we get to a really good time of year that'll make us feel better, it always just seems to fall apart, Right? And I think it's interesting because Jesus responds to his parents here when they ask him what he's doing, that he's in his father's house, in God's house, in the temple. And that's because he has to be. This is exactly who he is. He is a son of God. And what's crazy is that we can find our identity in him. The Bible tells us that our identification can be in Christ if we trust him. Let's turn the focus really quick back to why Luke is telling this story because it really tells us who Jesus is and why he came. I talked about a foreshadowing that's going on here, because Jesus will return to Jerusalem at the end of his life, actually to the very same location that he's in right now. You know, now, in this story, he's a boy, but when he returns, he's a man. Right now, only his parents are looking intensely for him, but then the whole city is stirred when he returns, asking, who is this? Now, at this point, he sits at the feet of religious teachers in the temple, But when he returns, he returns to the temple and he overturns the money changer's table for not respecting God's house. You know, now at this point, he's questioning his parents, like, why are you looking for me? But when he returns, he only weeps for the city that he loves. And this is meant for us. His coming, this advent that we talk about, is unquestionably connected to his death and his purpose. So finally, like, how do we respond to this? What what do we do with this? Let's read... um, the last two verses here, the last half of verse 51 and then verse 52. So the last half of verse 51 says, and his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And the last verse says, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. I want you to notice that line, Mary treasured up all these things in her heart. This is the same things that she says after the shepherds visit her, after she gives birth to Jesus in a stable. And what's really cool about the Christmas story is that it is about Jesus, 
but it records the thoughts and reactions of the people in that story. We have Zachariah and Elizabeth at the very beginning, a couple who can't get pregnant, they have a child. We have Mary visited by an angel and be told that she'll be the mother of the savior of the world. We have the announcement of birth to shepherds who are terrified at first, but then they leave rejoicing. We have two people in the temple who waited their entire life for the Messiah, finally get to experience that. We have a mother and father who care desperately for their son. And then finally, we have these religious leaders who are surprised and astonished at who Jesus is, but we know later on in the story, their hearts aren't changed. It doesn't reach them. It doesn't touch their souls. So what about you? What do you do with Jesus? What do you do with this story? You know, it's interesting because in early church history, they really struggled with his humanity. It was hard for them to understand after all he did and all the miracles and rising from the dead that he could actually be a human. There were all these stories of like, was he an apparition maybe? Did he not leave footprints in the sand as he walked along? But we have quite the opposite today, right? It's hard for us to, to understand sometimes like how this could be God. I think we see this a lot during this time of the year where like a, there's a cover story on National Geographic or Time Magazine or, or whatever, always asking that question if Jesus really walked this earth, if all the stories were just made up, did he really rise from the dead? But then we also have kind of the opposite, where people love Christmas time so much, but there's kind of this subtle inclusion of Jesus and kind of hope, peace, joy, all of those things. And what's really cool about this story is that at the end of it, Luke's not about to let us off the hook. He's going to remind us again of both the humanity and deity of Jesus. The last statement in this chapter is Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And I think it's tempting for some to get kind of theological about it. We can get into kind of arguments about like how Jesus could still be a human but still increase in wisdom and knowledge or, or, or rather how he could still be God and, and increase that way. But the bottom line is that Jesus as God in a way that we can't fully grasp will live the 100% human experience. I think it's hard to walk away from this and like not react to it in some way. And I think we have a choice in our response. We can be like the religious leaders. We can be totally blown away by who Jesus is, right? We can be just totally amazed at like this person who had a lot of good teachings and did a lot of really amazing things, but our hearts aren't really changed by that. It really doesn't touch us. It doesn't reach us. Or I think we can be like Mary and we can treasure what Jesus has said and ultimately trust him with our life. And there's lots of hope here. I mean, God used people like Mary and Joseph. They struggled to believe and understand. So we've come to the end of our Advent series. You know, this year we focused on hope, the hope that we have in Jesus. This hope isn't confined to kind of a heartwarming time or a sentimental period, but I think can be present in every single aspect of our life. If we look back to what we talked about, going back to the beginning, we saw hope for the disappointed. We saw hope in the midst of chaos. We saw hope for relationships. We saw that Jesus was born and came for each one of us, even the most unlikely of us. We saw that there is hope even when our expectations are misplaced. And then finally, we have this story from Jesus' childhood that communicates in a very clear way both his humanity and his deity. His humanity means that he can truly know you, but then his deity means that he can truly save you and offer you real hope. So just to end our time, I want to read the last verse in the Gospel of John. This is John 21, 25. It says, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did, were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books 
that would be written. You know, John's purpose in writing what he wrote was that so you may believe. And we see the same here in the book of Luke. And I think that means a lot for us. I mean, you can write a different story of your life. Jesus came to earth as both a human, but also as a son of God. His coming means that there is hope and that hope is real and tangible. And he's offering that to you today. So let's pray real quick and uh, then we'll do communion. God, I just uh, praise you for this this time that we have together. God, we thank you for your coming to this earth. We thank you, God, for coming as a human being to experience everything, God, that, that we experience in our lives today, God, that you know suffering, that you know difficulty, but also that you know great joy. We thank you for that, God. Um, I just pray that that would really reach into our souls, God, as we wake up tomorrow, Monday morning, go back to work, or whatever we're doing tomorrow, God, that this would truly impact our lives and touch our hearts, God. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.